Hi everyone, this is Simon Mannering, founder and CEO of We First. We'll be back very soon with a brand new season. But today I wanted to revisit a fantastic conversation I had last year with Adam Lowry, the co-CEO and co-founder of Ripple Foods. I learn so much every time I speak with Adam. He's a climate scientist turned entrepreneur who has taken on some of the most entrenched consumer product categories like home cleaning and dairy. So thanks for joining us and enjoy the episode. Welcome to this week's episode of Lead with We, where I'm talking with Adam Lowry, who is the former co-founder of Method, which was an enormous success in the cleaning product category, and is now executive chairman of Ripple Foods. And I'm so excited to talk to Adam because not only did he take on such a deeply entrenched and competitive category, such as the dairy category, but he's generated enormous success on the strength of Ripple Foods and has been highly awarded across the board in terms of social and environmental impact. So Adam, welcome to Lead With We. Well, thank you for having me, Simon. It's a real pleasure to be here. Looking back at your journey here, you know, on your website, you had this sort of timeline. And back in 1996, when we were all kind of wide-eyed and, you know, looking forward to the future, you described yourself as eager and altruistic. Like, where did that instinct to launch a purposeful business come from? And did you start off, you know, with this idea of building, you know, one business after another that was going to have social environmental impact? Or did you discover it as you went along? I didn't. I discovered it as I went along. And it really was a journey. I think that from the very early days, I've always been somebody that's enjoyed the outdoors. And, and my version of that is actually getting out on the water. So I grew up racing small sailboats, and I actually still do that um, quite a bit these days. Um, and that's a sport where being really in tune with your surroundings is really important to being successful. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was something that was breeding in me a, a, an appreciation for what was outside around me. And when I came out of um, undergrad, I was really into environmental science. I had taken, uh, for example, I took a course called the Ecosystems of California, which is really, I studied all of these, you know, this diversity that we have in this state. And I thought, hey, you know, why don't I go into the environmental science field? Um, I ended up getting lucky enough to get a job at the Carnegie Institution for Science, which does climate science. And I thought, hey, uh, back to the altruism, I said, hey, you know, we're going to do the climate science and we're going to make sure that that leads to some great policies and, you know, the world's going to get better as a result. And uh, of course, uh, that led to uh, some frustration, some, some other things that led me on a different part of my journey. You know, I want to focus on Ripple Foods, but just pointing back to Method for a moment, you know, you had the, a moment in time where you could sell Method. And you've built this baby with your sweat equity and the integrity of it is super important to you. How does an entrepreneur, a purposeful entrepreneur, make that decision to say, A, I'm going to sell it and B, decide if someone's the right partner? I think there are four things that are important when selling a business like this, um, like Method, like a Ripple. Um, will the business be able to grow better than it did before you sold it? Will it be able to deepen and enhance, not just maintain, its social and environmental mission? Is it good for the employees of the company? And does the price make sense for the shareholders? In that order. Those are the four things that matter. And 
What I'm really proud of with Method is that we did our best work, and, and they are still doing it. Um, we did our best work from a sustainability perspective and from a mission perspective after we sold the business. You know, great example. So we built uh, a factory in Chicago called the Southside, Southside Soapbox. It's one of two plat lead platinum certified factories uh, in the United States, um, renewably powered by utility scale wind and solar, a landfill free, uh, water neutral. It has the largest rooftop greenhouse in the world growing leafy greens on its roof in the middle of a food desert. It's the first factory of any kind built, new factory built on the south side of Chicago in 30 years. Amazing, it restores natural habitat. It's an amazing place. And that was built after we sold the company because we met those four conditions I just mentioned. We had a new owner uh, that really wanted to, to deepen and enhance that social mission. And we were able to create hundreds of, of, of green manufacturing jobs in a place where people desperately needed work. Uh, and that was a great example of how when you go from a venture-backed business, which generally has a very thin balance sheet, to a different kind of, of business that has a bigger balance sheet, you can make even more investments in what you're doing. And I think that it, it's a great example that shows that you don't have to sell out when you sell. I think that's a really powerful point in that, that when you do go to scale, it's not just greater reach and so on, you've got greater resources to double down on your original intent in some ways and to add value in the ways that you care about. And most importantly, by the way, that factory lowers the cost of our manufacturing and it increases uh, the attendance rates of people that are working on the lines. And it, it has an economic benefit to the business and the community, not just an environmental and a social one. Right. And give me a, a window. Give us a window into that, the Adam Lowry moment where you and your fellow founders had sold Method and you realize that, you know, that journey has run its course and you've got this moment in time where you're free on the other side. Do you celebrate? Does it last two days and then your passion for purpose rears its head again and you're back at it? Or do you sort of sit on an island for six weeks or six months and go and catch your breath after all the effort of being an entrepreneur? What was it like, that transition? Yeah, there was no island for me. Um, I actually was working uh, sort of full-time at Method and full-time at Ripple Foods at the same time. Um, that was... Uh, only for a short period of time. But for me, what it, I mean, for me, what it was about was, you know, after 15 years with uh, Method, the question in my mind was, okay, if my goal in my career is to do as much good as I can through business before I retire, which might be when I keel over, then how, you know, how do I do that? Is it best for me to stick with this thing that I've created that's large and growing and successful? Or do I take a chance and try to start another thing that could be someday another quote unquote method? Um, and uh, I, I decided to, to, to do option B and in large part because the impacts of our food system are even greater and more um, you know, impactful than, uh, than in, even in, in household uh, care. And even though they're different categories, when you look back now, you know, you're starting Ripple, you've got the benefit of hindsight, all the learnings from Method. Is there anything with Method you had done differently? Oh, tons. Yeah, tons. I think, 
what the biggest mistake we made with with method and we Eric and I wrote a book about this called the method method um, it was that we overextended the business so we had a successful formula of how we were bringing consumers in and retailers were really excited about how we were reinventing categories and they asked us to reinvent lots of different categories across the store and we did too many of them and uh, it coincided with the Great Recession, but I will be clear to point out it was not the recession's fault, it was our fault, um, that we got too extended. And uh, as the economy started to change, we were unable to support all of the businesses that we were in. Uh, we, had to, uh, we had to lay off about a third of our staff. We had to shrink the business. Um, I had to let one of the groomsmen at my own wedding Go. Oh, that's. Um, uh, I hope you guys are still talking. I, I hope. Yeah, we're still really good friends, but that's not what we talk about these right. days. Um, <laughs> and nor nor should it be. Yeah. But and and that was you know to me it's a great it serves as a great reminder that um, you've got to be smart about the way that you grow even when you have that entrepreneurial instinct to just grow 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 at any at any cost. Um, sometimes there is a cost and there is a difference between smart growth and growth for growth's sake. You mentioned at the top that, you know, you were keen, you know, you had this ecosystem lens on business. What made you look at the dairy category and what gave you the confidence that you could take on something that is so entrenched? There's such lobbying around it. You know, it, it's, it's quite it's quite the, the force in its own right. Yeah, and, and so far I've really focused on categories that seem like they're really overpopulated and very hyper-competitive with brands. But what I look for is not that. What I'm looking for is white space relative to the consumer opportunity. With Method, obviously, it was the idea of making a, a greener cleaning product, something that was beautiful and smelled good and you could leave out on your countertop. Right. Pretty simple but powerful idea. With Ripple Foods, it was the fact that um, all of our dairy alternatives right now are terrible alternatives to dairy. <laughs> There's a lot of them, um, but none of them taste the way that milk tastes. They're not rich and creamy, they're thin and watery. Nearly all of them lack protein entirely, which is the number one nutritional benefit of dairy. Uh, and so there was a lot of white space from the standpoint that consumers just weren't getting what you want from dairy in the non-dairy space. So it starts with the consumer need or opportunity? Always, always. And then there was a, another important piece with the Ripple side of things, which was we developed a technology that others don't have that enables us to create a really nutritious dairy alternative that doesn't taste planty the way that a lot of plant-based products do. Um, it's really hard to get rid of those flavors. And my co-founder, uh, PhD chemical engineer, he developed a process to, to basically make the purest plant protein from plants anywhere in the world. Uh, and because of that, it's flavorless. And from there, you can put a lot of it in a dairy alternative and not have it taste like peas or soy or anything like that. Have it taste a lot more like milk. So is the foundational spine of the company really this technology and, and, and the power of protein in you know, various product alternatives? Yeah, it was the there's a core technology, which is making the purest plant protein on Earth. And then that allows us to create delicious plant based alternatives that we can go in lots of different spaces with. And, you know, the name Ripple Foods is so evocative and it, you know, 
d delivers on all the meanings you intend. But how did you come about that? Because half the battle is is going to market with the right story if you're yeah. a social entrepreneur. How did you get there? Yeah, there's pros and cons with the approach we took. And the same is true with Method, right? Method doesn't immediately say cleaning products, but you sort of get it as you understand that the brand is more about technique than power. Um, Ripple is similar in that it's all about the ripple effect. It's all about the little choices we make every day and how that makes us healthier and the world a little bit better. And, but contrast that with the category. Every other brand in the category has an ingredient in the brand name, right? right. It's like, you know, oat something or almond breeze or whatever, even silk. Silk is soy milk contracted. But, but ingredients are not what actually matter here. What matters is the nutrition, the functionality of the product that you're giving people. And uh, so what we wanted to do, much like Method, was create a brand that was more meaningful to the consumer on an emotional level and that told that, you know, they created a brand promise that we could back up. Um, and we back that up right now with a P-based technology, but P's are not what make Ripple unique. Um, what makes us unique is we make um, a high, uh, the, the most nutritious and delicious plant-based milk products on the market. How do you compete, though? It seems like, you know, dairy was in favor, then out of favor, 2%, 1%, then it becomes almond, and then it becomes oat. And, and there's this sort of this cycle of consumer attention, like it's the latest shiny squirrel. How do you compete with that? Yeah, go long. Just go long term. What, what we know is that what's gonna be important in food categories is taste and nutrition. And if you solve for winning on taste and nutrition over the long term, that's the way to be most successful. And that's why, as I just said, we don't position Ripple as, you know, it's not called Pilk, right? It, that's not the brand name. <laughs> that was the second name you were gonna use, but you were like, ah, oh, something wrong. <laughs> yes, right. You know, peas for us is just a means to an end. Um, there are others and we may migrate to those over time. But what the brand is really about is, is those little choices you make every day, how they make you healthier and delivering on the most nutritious and delicious plant-based alternatives on the market. So, I mean, has the journey been kind of fairly consistent on the strength of your experience and learnings from Method with Ripple? Or have you had pushback from the dairy industry and there's just been churn? What's it been Yeah, like? always ups and downs. And I think any entrepreneur would tell you exactly the same thing. You know, uh, people have said, hey, uh, I heard this from Gary Hirschberg once who said that uh, people describe uh, Stonyfield Farm is a 27-year overnight success story, right? And uh, that one kind of resonated with me where, I mean, tons of ups and downs, competitive uh, attacks um, that have come on our shelf space with our customers. There have been challenges. We've been sued by almost everybody um, as just a tactic to tie us up with lawyers and make us spend our money. So what do you do? How do you think through those challenges? Do you just go back to the sort of touchstone of why you started the company or do you say, right, I'm going to duke it out in public? What do you do? Yeah, uh, it, it depends on how the situation uh, presents itself. So great fun story was uh, back in the day, Clorox challenged Method because uh, they had a Greenworks brand where they used a picture of a daisy on their label. Um, and we had used prior to that a little image of a daisy in a bottle, a method like a, like a vase, um, and it was part of our marketing. And they sent us a cease and desist letter on that. So uh, we decided to publish the cease and desist letter, and we created a 
a microsite called votedaisy.com and challenged America to decide who should own the daisy, um, Clorox method or Mother Nature. Nice jujitsu move where you take their <laughs> energy and turn it back on them. Yeah, exactly. And that's it's nice when those types of opportunities present themselves, um, you know, in other situations, it's more about just making sure it's not a resource strain and keeping your team really focused on, you know, what we're trying to do and helping them understand that just because we're getting sued by Megacorp, it's actually a positive sign. It's a little badge of <laughs> honor that you're doing something right. Yeah, um, they wouldn't sue us if they weren't threatened by us. Yeah, um, you have their attention. We have their attention. And so let's keep, you know, stick to our knitting and make sure we service our people better than... Uh, than they do. What's really interesting about the approach you've taken is it's kind of this mutual responsibility to each other. We're going to better serve you as a consumer, but we need you to make these choices because they serve you better, but also serve the planet and our future better. It seems very participatory in nature. Is that true? Very much so. And we try to reinforce that. You know, if you go to ripplefoods.com, which is our website, you'll see um, like a, it's a counter on our website that does, it's the real time water savings, greenhouse gas savings, uh, less sugar, more protein, less plastic that is used as a result of people buying Ripple in real time. And what that is, is us trying to give the credit where it's due, which is not to us, but to our consumers for the ripple effect that they're having on our world by choosing our brand instead of somebody else's. And so in that way, we're trying to reinforce the participatory nature of the brand and of better commerce, of, of, of mission-driven commerce in general. You know, what you're speaking to is one of the many spinning plates that entrepreneurs have. Every brand out there now that wants to make a positive impact has to kind of fairly intentionally decide what tone of voice they're going to have at one extreme they may just you know want to do less bad and and sort of just play down the middle of the fairway others may want to be you know credible in terms of esg or the sustainable development goals or csr initiatives and then there are others that are quite protagonist in nature like you see with the ben and jerry's and the patagonias how did you choose what tone of voice or does it change over time yeah, you know, for for the two brands here, Ripple and 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 Method that we've been talking about, uh, we chose one where it was part philosophy and part strategy. So the the philosophy that I have is that doing good in the broad sense, whether that's environmental, social, whatever it is that the business is doing, um, sh should just be part of the quality of the product and and the way the business does business. It shouldn't be the differentiating factor. It's pointless for us to make green products for green people. What we need to do is we need to make green products for everybody. There are always still trade-offs, but if you're having to trade off between your financial bottom line and your environmental bottom line, you haven't found the right solution yet. And so that's the philosophical point. I also think strategically within our categories, it's not what sells, right? You know, when you're talking about soap and milk, uh, the sustainability of those products is relatively unimportant to most people. Um, and I don't blame them for that. Um, it, let, so let's make it important to us. And then let's make those products awesome for all of the other non-sustainable reasons um, and inspire those people that you can do all of that and have it be sustainable at the same time. Because if we're successful, all brands are going to adopt these mannerisms, right? That's that's what B Corp is all about. Right. And and. You know, I think you are a founding member of the B Corp movement, right? 
Yes. How has being a B Corp added to your bottom line? Because, I mean, awareness of the movement has increased. There's now B movement builders for larger corporations and so on. It's really gained, gained the um, attention momentum it deserves. Has it translated to the bottom line? And if so, how? Sure. Um, I'll say uh, a, a couple of different ways. So, so the most obvious way that gets talked about a lot is employee retention and employee attraction and that sort of thing, right? It's, it's authentic and people stay with the business and all of that is real and that happens. Um, there are, um, and then let me take it all the way to the top. And, and unfortunately I can't speak uh, specific numbers, but when the method business was sold, it traded at a premium not in spite of, but because of its authentic social and environmental outcomes. So, you know, take a banker from Goldman Sachs and they would look at our business and say the trading multiple on that was higher than the market, you know, uh, for a business like ours. And it was because that the acquiring company recognized the long-term potential of both the hard and soft, that the reduced costs that would come through, for example, using um, packaging materials that are lower cost and more sustainable than using virgin plastic, for example, real hard costs, and the soft costs of how a brand like ours um, would be able to gain share over businesses that didn't have what we had over a long period of time. And so, you know, our shareholders made more money because we were the way we were, period. And, you know, as the co-founder, you know, you've made a conscious choice to take all these slings and arrows of outrageous fortune on the way through. Yet you've got your team of, you know, employees there that kind of are kind of reeling with all of these hits and ups and downs. How do you keep your culture together? What do you yeah. do uniquely at, you know, Ripple that you think is a bit of a secret sauce? Yeah. And again, I learned my first lesson here with Method where we we we. Uh, got to a point with Method where uh, we described it as uh, culture was the secret sauce, but none of us had the recipe um, right. at, at Method. And uh, actually the book we wrote was all about the process of creating the cultural code after the fact at, at Method. And so with Ripple Foods, we were very deliberate upfront to try to define um, the way I think about it is there's values, behaviors, and rituals. And uh, values are what we believe in, what we believe, you know, behaviors are how we act. And, and then rituals are the little things that you do every day in a business that reinforce, you know, who we are in that collective code. I think the thing that's really different about the way we've done it at Ripple Foods is um, we've done it as spectrums. Um, and we don't have the time to go into all of it, but rather than just say, hey, collaboration is important to us, right? Um, for example, we talk about accountability and freedom in our business as a spectrum where, you know, one earns freedom to work the way you want and all of that through delivering results, being accountable to what you're doing. And that, I think, is a little bit more of an evolved way of thinking about company culture. It's like a little bit more of a give and a get. Um, and yeah. it's a little bit more honest. And so, you know, that's how we're doing it there. That's interesting. And I think, would, you, would your advice be to social entrepreneurs and companies of all sizes out there to be really intentional about their culture and kind of really think through the frameworks that kind of define the behavior? Or is, it, is that something that was important to you personally, or you just learned that 
after you know. I do think it's really important early on, um, but I also think it's important to leave space to really mine the culture from within. Um, it, it can't be prescriptive, and that's obvious. But don't make that mistake. It can't come. So from it has the to top. be co-creative. You yeah. you work with them on defining this. Then what did yeah. that process look like? How did you do that? Yeah, thing? it is a process, um, and it's. In general, it's one where you get you know a handful of people within the organization that you think are relatively well suited to kind of doing this type of work. There's a bunch of meetings of you know mining what people think the culture means from all around the organization. Uh, the founders, you know, you you kind of give some inspiration on what I would love. Here's what matters to me, and I think it should sort of look like this. But then there's a there's a push pull in between meeting in the middle about um, how you actually put that on the paper in terms of what we value and how we behave and how we practice those things. Um, again, another topic for another day, but you know, that's, it's something that I'm really passionate about. I think it, it takes a lot of work and the work is worth it. And, and crafting culture needs to be so intentional. It really does, because it makes all the difference. And what does the future of Ripple Foods look like? Yeah, for, for Ripple, it's probably going to still be focused very much on the dairy alternative categories writ large, right? So think milk, cheese, yogurt, ice cream, uh, and in North America primarily, just because we're tiny in our category still. And these categories are so large and growing so quickly that there's a lot of growth and impact that we can create by um, by doing the you know, the down and dirty type of stuff. And so actually um, I've recently brought in a bunch of new senior members of my leadership team uh, to do exactly that. People that are really experienced in building, you know, multi-thousand employee companies and billion dollar brands. Um, and because the a lot of what is going to create the growth for Ripple Foods in the, in the near future is shelf space and pricing and promo and, and that type of stuff. Um, there are other opportunities like international, which are super exciting, but um, I think those are going to develop over the next sort of three to five years. And any piece of advice you'd give this growing army of entrepreneurs out there that are really looking to solve for some of these grand challenges that we face? Anything that you might say to them on the strength of the experience with Method, with Ripple? Yeah, I think it's probably stuff we've already mentioned, Simon, but the two big things I think are... Um, you have to start with the consumer and, and think about a consumer as a person and what are you providing to that person that's just better, just better um, in all of the traditional ways that they would evaluate that category or thing. Um, and if you create a better product that's really differentiated, then the rest of the business just gets a lot easier. Um, it's not easy, um, but it gets a lot more doable than, you know, being in a position where you're you're not so differentiated. Yeah, I think when you get the product right, it helps. It goes a long way, you know, to helping the business take care of itself. Yeah, and, it's one uh, of those cliches that's true. <laughs> and you know, you heard it here first, second, third. I don't know fourth, <laughs> but I think there's another business in the wings. I hear that there might be something in the sugar space coming up. Is there anything you can share with us about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm absolutely happy to share. So I've started another business. It's called Sugar Break, and we're focused on reducing people's consumption of sugar and helping with blood sugar management uh, for diabetes and pre-diabetes. Um, so about a third of the U.S. is diabetic or pre-diabetic. Um, 
You can go to sugar, sugarbreak.com, we've launched. Um, you can see the products there, but our hero product is one that, uh, it's like a Listerine strip. You put it on your tongue, um, freshens your breath, and for about an hour after that, you cannot taste sugar. You can literally pour sugar on your tongue and it tastes like you have sand on your tongue. Wow. It's like on-demand willpower. So you're basically bringing that rolled up newspaper to our, our taste buds and saying, no, you're not going to eat any of that. You don't want to eat that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's mind-blowing, actually. Uh, and then we've got a couple other products that lower your blood sugar over time. So really helping in, uh, you know, which, is a, which is with a really big problem, as, as you know. That sounds super exciting. And, and Adam, thank you so much for the insights into Method, into Ripple. Congratulations on the success. And, and uh, we look forward to hearing more about Sugar Break as well. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Lead with We, where I spoke with Adam Lowry, the executive chairman of Ripple Foods, who shared with us how they took on some of the toughest consumer categories and why innovation and authenticity is so critical to purposeful profit and how taking on today's greatest social and environmental challenges starts by designing an authentically better product. If you want to subscribe to Lead with We, you can find us on Apple, Google, or Spotify and please recommend it to your friends and colleagues so they too can become purposeful and profitable businesses. If you'd like to learn more about how you can build a purposeful brand, do check out wefirstbranding.com where we have lots of free resources and case studies. See you on the next episode of Lead with We.